Yeah, as Ben mentioned, we are going to be in uh, Luke 6. We're going to read verses 12 through 19. That's going to be our text. I'm going to read the whole thing. And then, uh, and then we'll pray. So while you're getting there, uh, Luke 6, this is where Jesus is going to pick his 12 disciples or apostles. And also, um, we're going to see him, his popularity is getting pretty big. He's got lots of people around him. So um, picking up in verse 12, this is what it says. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, he being Jesus. And he, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. And he came down with them, and he stood on a level place. And a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoasts of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out of him, and he healed them all. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you use ordinary people, broken vessels to accomplish your purposes. I pray now, Lord, for this time that you will open our hearts. Pray that you would speak through me as a broken vessel to declare your truth. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts would just be focused on your word. Pray that we would leave here feeling instructed, feeling encouraged that we would see more of who you are. Jesus, I just thank you that you, that your boundless love does cover our boundless sin. And I pray right now for our time. I pray you would help us. In your name, amen. So I just want to give a, an introduction of what we're going to be talking about and kind of give you a roadmap of where we're going. Um, so first of all, I want to talk about some observations before this passage and after this passage. Uh, Luke 4 through 6, those chapters have a lot to offer us. So I'm going to talk about kind of what we've seen before, what's going to come after and how that fits in. Uh, we're going to talk some about Jesus' prayer life because verse 12 gives us a pretty big glimpse into his prayer life. Um, we're going to talk um, about the 12 disciples in some detail. We're going to talk about their lives and some lessons that we can glean from how Jesus picked them and, and what the text tells us about that. Uh, and then finally, we're going to close with a couple thoughts on just kind of the multitudes surrounding Jesus. So if you're a note taker, that's kind of the, the pattern we're going to go um, and, um, and follow. So uh, let me start with some observations about the passage first. And there are three um, that I want to hit on. First is Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He kind of makes that clear leading up to this passage. Um, I'm going to summarize Luke 4 through 6 is our mission as believers and then talk um, about kind of how Jesus is at this interesting inflection point where his popularity and the hatred for him is increasing. So um, the, if, if you were here last Sunday, that text covered uh, Luke 1, 6, 1 through 11. And in there, there are two stories 
where Jesus is really trying to demonstrate his divinity and he's trying to, to really start to communicate the message that he is God. And so there's one story where the disciples are, it's, it's a Sabbath, they're walking through a grain field, they're hungry, they don't have any food, they pluck some heads of grain and they eat. And this makes the religious leaders really indignant. And um, Jesus you know, rebukes them with the story from David. And then the next passage right after that, uh, there's a man, Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath, and there's a man there in the temple who has a disabled hand. It just says his hand is withered, so we don't know exactly what that means, but it, it didn't function, it didn't work. And so um, the religious leaders are there, and they're ready to pounce to see if Jesus heals this guy. Um, and so it's really pretty absurd if you think about it. They're kind of hoping Jesus will heal him so they'll have something to use against him. And so Jesus calls the man up, you know, lets everybody see that his hand is disabled, and then he heals him. And, and so again, Jesus, you know, rebukes the religious leaders saying that um, he's concerned with what is going on in our heart and not being able to keep all the rules. And if you peek back at verse 11, it actually says, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So this is really fairly early in Jesus's ministry. And we're already starting to see that some of the religious leaders are, are starting to consider fatal options for Jesus and how to, how to kill him. Um, and then this passage is kind of in an interesting part of Luke. So if you look at Luke 4 through 6, and as I've been looking at those uh, for the last month or so, um, it really hit me that those three chapters really summarize what it is it, it, for our message as believers and how we're to live our lives. So you see Jesus doing a lot of physical things. You see him healing people. Um, you see him, you know, casting out demons. Uh, and you see him rebuking the religious leaders. But you also see him teaching. Um, Luke 6, chapter 20, through um, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, is kind of Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is doing a lot to teach the people's hearts. And it really hit me. This is our job as believers is God has called us. He's given us resources to share with people and to love people. But we also have to have the message of the gospel and the message of hope. Or um, we're not very different than just like a government or a humanitarian aid, aid program. So um, we can't ignore their physical pain, but we can't just relieve it without, without the hope of the gospel. So Unfortunately, we have um, some dear friends in Texas who uh, their marriage is kind of teetering right on the brink of destruction, and uh, it's because of the, the husband's struggle with alcohol. And um, two weeks ago, uh, his wife convinced him to um, check himself into a facility, a 30-day rehab facility, um, where he's kind of quarantined. And part of the process of the, the rehabilitation is for them to do some counseling together. And they were, they were in, a, in a bad spot and it looked like things might fall apart. So they kind of quickly, you know, made a decision and got him in this facility. And they're lamenting it a little bit because the facility is not a faith-based, um, it doesn't have a faith-based aspect to it. And so um, he's, he's getting some good help in terms of, uh, um, you know, the destructiveness of the alcohol, but they, they don't have really any hope to offer him. And so um, she's been calling Robin kind of daily and they've been talking. And thankfully, both of them um, profess Christ and, and they realize, you know, the hopelessness of, of um, 
trying to rehabilitate yourself without God. There's, there's real, really no hope. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to focus on the impending destruction, but if you don't have anything to cling to to pull you out of it, um, it's a pretty hopeless situation. So this is really what God has called us to as believers is um, to share our lives and to share the hope that we have with those um, who don't know him. Um, and again, at this point, if you look at uh, verse 17, it says, he came down with them and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of disciples. So these are people who are following him. That, that's a big crowd in and of itself. And then you get, and a great multitude of people from, from all of these different regions. So Jesus is, is really, his name throughout the area is getting big and his popularity is really spreading and people want to see what he's like. But as we read in verse 11, the religious leaders are also starting to talk about, okay, we might have to get rid of this Jesus guy. So you have kind of this in, increasing popularity and unpopularity at the same time. Um, and eventually this is going to kind of peak and, and um, it's going to result with Jesus being killed because the religious leaders are going to really uh, um, kind of assert all of their authority and, and get the crowd, crowds riled up against Jesus and ultimately have him killed. So we're starting to see this kind of building toward that um, crescendo of the gospel story. So let's look at um, the passage itself. So verse 12, um, Jesus is about to pick the 12 disciples who Luke also uh, calls apostles. An apostle just means messenger or sent one. And it says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. So Jesus is, he was fully God while he was here, but he was also fully man. And he needed a lot of time to commune with the Father. And you see him pretty regularly going off and seeking God and spending time with him. Um, some of the gospel stories allude to this. So Luke tells us in 5.16, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So he's saying this is kind of a regular pattern of Jesus to pull himself back and just have some one-on-one -on -one communion with the Father. Um, the famous story where Jesus walks on water out to his disciples, um, a lot of times we forget the very beginning of that story. Jesus has sent the disciples out because he wants to be alone with God and pray on the mountain. And that's why he has to walk out to them on water um, is because he sent them out to have time to himself. So if you read through Luke, he more than anybody else highlights Jesus's prayer life. And so um, there are 17 instances in Luke where he either records Jesus praying or he talks about a time like this where Jesus went away to pray. And as I've been studying this passage, it's really been um, a, a, an admonishment for my soul that if Jesus, who is fully divinely God, needed all of this time to spend and commune with the Father, that, um, you know, my heart is going to need a lot of time with God and is going to need to spend a lot of time with Him um, for me to, to, to truly understand who He is, to see how beautiful He is, um, and, to, and to be able to, you know, be a light for Him, a light for the gospel as I go through life. Um, so we should have a great need. You know, we do have a great need for prayer. So Jesus is, is gone. He's really, he's gotten alone with God. He's prayed and he comes down. Again, at this point, he has a lot of followers. He has a lot of disciples, but he's getting ready to section off 12 to kind of treat these guys differently than he's going to treat everyone else. Um, and these are, you know, just 12 pretty regular dudes, 12 pretty normal hombres. They're not, you know, the Harvard 
kind of Stanford graduates of their day. Um, so a lot of them were fishermen. We know seven, five of them were fishermen. As many as seven may have been fishermen. Um, it wasn't bad to be a fisherman in that day, but you know, you didn't have to, it wasn't a high barrier to entry. It wasn't regarded as like a, you know, really esteemed profession. Um, we know Matthew or Levi was a tax collector. He, he, tax collectors did make a lot of money, so he probably had significant wealth, but it was despised. You were seen as like the scum of the earth to be a tax collector. So while he, you know, probably had some wealth, it was not a, a position that got you a lot of, you know, credit in society. So I want to go through and just kind of comment. Uh, we'll spend the most amount of time on Peter and Judas, but I do want to comment on all of these disciples. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record Jesus picking the 12 disciples. Uh, and in all three of their lists, um, Peter is listed first, Judas is listed last. The other 10, there's not a, a ton of consistency in how they're listed. But with those two, we are meant to get a couple things. And so with Peter being listed first, he was viewed as the leader of the disciples in many ways. And we'll see Jesus treats Peter differently in some, in some stories than he treats any of the other disciples. So right before Jesus is crucified, he publicly tells Peter, hey, in front of all the other disciples, you're going to deny me three times. And uh, to which Peter is, you know, kind of put on the defensive and, and says, no, I won't do that. Um, and then, of course, it does happen. And then after Jesus has risen from the dead, he pulls Peter again, kind of in front of all the disciples and says, hey, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes. And he tells him to feed the sheep. And he's, it's kind of his official uh, res restoration of Peter and saying, you know, hey, I love you. Everything's okay. And um, I'm going to use you to be, uh, you know, a significant leader in the early church. So Jesus is, is kind of, you know, acknowledging Peter's leadership ability and he treats him differently in some ways than he does the other disciples. Um, as I mentioned, these guys were pretty normal guys. Um, and that, con that continues a, a theme that we see in the Bible. You see God in the Old Testament and the New Testament a lot of times using pretty normal, ordinary people. Um, because again, it's his work, it's his might that's going to accomplish the mission. And he doesn't have to assemble the most talented or the smartest or, or the most affluent people to be able to get it done. So if you think about Moses, uh, Moses was a shepherd who had trouble speaking and God used him um, to be the mouthpiece for God to deliver all of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. If you think about Gideon, Gideon was considered probably the least significant person in all of Israel, and God uses him to, you know, lead a great victory and deliver the Israelites from their army, or from their, um, to, to defeat the foreign army that was oppressing them. Um, so certainly he would not have been the first person that any man would have picked to lead the army. Um, so if you, if you look through, if you look throughout the Bible, you'll see this a lot. Even with David, you know, Saul was the first king of Israel, and a lot of people were really excited about Saul because he was tall, he was big, he was handsome, he was what they thought a king should look like. And it turned out when he became king, his heart kind of became cold toward the people and toward God. And so God had to pick a different king to take Saul's place. And he tells Samuel, he says, go to Jesse. Jesse has all these sons, more than Garrett Jones. He says, go to Jesse. And he says, I'm going to pick 
I'm going to pick a king from the sons of Jesse. And so Jesse brings in all his sons except for David, because David was viewed as like this little runt. And, uh, and so Samuel sees them, and they're all these kind of big, impressive guys. And he thinks, oh, yeah, this, this will be easy. God's going to pick one of these guys. And, uh, and God says, it's none of them. So he says to Jesse, do you, do you by chance have any more kids you didn't tell me about? And he says, well, there's David, but he's just the youngest one, and he watches the sheep. So they bring him in, and Samuel's like, hey, this guy's going to be the king. And so a lot of times God is, he, he doesn't have to depend on your abilities to get his work done. And I don't know about for you, but for me, that provides a lot of hope. And it provides a lot of joy to think that it's not dependent upon my goodness or my talents or my nice hair or anything like that to be able to accomplish what God wants to do, that he has the ability to do it um, on his own. So let's talk some about these guys. Uh, we'll start with Peter who Jesus changes his name to Peter. It's originally Simon, and Peter's a nickname. So Peter literally translated means rock. So Peter was the rock before Dwayne Johnson was. But um, so he's, he's not the rock yet, but Jesus is going to foreshadow who he's going to become with the Holy Spirit in his heart. So we see Simon a lot kind of making an idiot of himself, kind of bumbling around, falling on his face. But through all of that, God is working his purposes to kind of mold and shape his heart and fill him with his spirit so that he does become a rock. He becomes a solid leader in the early church. And we see him in Acts preaching these powerful sermons where in, in some cases thousands of people a day come to Jesus and, and believe and confess. So, you know, God does a transformation with him. And we'll see... Throughout the rest of the gospel, Luke is going to refer to Simon as Peter now. Then we have Andrew. Andrew was Peter's brother. He's also a fisherman like Peter. Uh, they're both from Bethsaida. And Andrew, if you read in John's uh, gospel in John 1, Andrew actually finds Jesus first and realizes first that Jesus is the Messiah. And then Andrew, the first thing he does is he goes and finds Peter. And he says, hey, you got to come. We found, I found the Messiah. You got to come check this out. Now, Andrew doesn't get near the airtime in the Bible that Peter does. Um, but he followed Jesus consistently till the end. History tells us that he died a martyr's death on behalf of Jesus. So just because we don't know as much about his life doesn't mean that he wasn't faithful and played the role that God had for him in bringing him glory. Then we get to James and John. Again, we have a set of brothers here. So they're brothers. They're also fishermen. And they have these really fiery personalities. In fact, in Mark 3, Jesus calls them the sons of thunder. So we have the rock. We have the sons of thunder. Jesus is evidently into like WWE names um, for these guys. So they're so fiery. In fact, they go into one village. And this village is kind of you know, rude and brushes Jesus off. And they say, hey, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to these people? They're disrespecting you? To which Jesus rebukes them and says, you're not getting it yet, you idiots. Um, he says nicer than that, idiots part I added. Um, but basically, these guys are, 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 are kind of, you're on my team or you're not on my team. And uh, they're pretty fiery. And we see uh, Acts 2 tells us that James is, is, is martyred for Jesus, that Herod has him killed. He's most likely the first disciple that gets killed for Jesus. Uh, John 
is the last disciple that gets killed. So we have them kind of bookending. And he's actually the only one who dies a natural death. So he did suffer for Jesus' sake, um, but God has him die a natural death. Then we get to Philip. Philip was also from Bethsaida. Um, and in John's gospel, when Philip finds Jesus and he realizes who Jesus is, he has this similar kind of Andrew reaction. He goes and he finds Nathaniel or Bartholomew. And he's like, hey, we found the Messiah. And so you see in these, in these early disciples, they have this kind of natural overflow, this natural bent toward evangelism. And once they really realize who Jesus is, they want other people to know about it because they see how magnificent, you know, the God of heaven is. And so um, he appears to be one who may have kind of said whatever was on his mind because um, we catch him a couple times where um, when Jesus is about to feed the 5,000, he says to Philip, hey, we sh these people have been here all day listening to me talk. We should feed them, to which Philip kind of dryly responds, 200 days wages, so basically more than half a year of a normal salary wouldn't be enough food to feed all these people. You know, we don't have that kind of money. And so, um, you know, to which Jesus basically rebukes him and shows him how powerful he is by feeding the 5,000. Uh, we also catch Philip saying, um, hey, show us the Father. If we, if we can see the Father, that'll be enough for us. To which Jesus replies, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Philip appears to have not, um, not had a lot of timidity in kind of saying, you know, whatever he was thinking to Jesus. And then we get Bartholomew who, Bartholomew, who appears to have some of these same tendencies as Philip, which is probably why they were friends, because um, they probably hurt everyone else's feelings except each other's. Um, but Bartholomew, Philip comes to him and says, hey, we found the Christ, we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. It, to which he says... Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So basically, like, he would be the guy on the camping trip to start telling West Virginia jokes and making fun of people from West Virginia. Because that's kind of what he's saying is, Nazareth, how the Messiah couldn't come from, you know what those people are like? No offense to anybody from West Virginia. Um, so, but uh, we see him when Jesus, in John, when Jesus sees Bartholomew, he says, hey, here's an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. So apparently Bartholomew is this kind of no-nonsense, you know, straight shooter um, who, who wouldn't, you know, say one thing but really mean another thing. Uh, we talked about Matthew's story a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to go into him very much, but um, he was a tax collector, uh, so he would have been despised by Jewish society. He would have been very unpopular. Uh, then we get Thomas. Thomas is famously known for being Doubting Thomas. Uh, he is probably the glasses half empty disciple. He appears to always be worried that something bad is going to happen um, or, uh, you know, that, the, that they're going to lose Jesus. Um, and what we miss in that, so yes, he doubted Jesus, uh, but what we miss in that is um, he was very devoted to Jesus. And if you read in John 14, he's the one, when Jesus is talking about leaving them, um, he's the one that says, you know, where are you going? And, and how do we know the way to get there? So even though he was, um, you know, maybe uh, we don't, it doesn't say he struggled with bouts of melancholy or was, you know, kind of a downer, but he appears to be kind of always afraid something's going to go wrong. He was um, immensely devoted to Jesus. Um, 
And when Jesus does restore him, after he lets him put his, he puts his hand in his sides and his hands, uh, he, Thomas does declare, my Lord and my God. So he's, he's acknowledging Jesus' divinity and he's acknowledging his allegiance to Jesus. Then we get James, who's the son of Alphaeus. And honestly, we don't know much about him. Mark calls him James the Less, which may have meant James the Younger or James Small in stature. Uh, then we get to Simon the Zealot. And this probably refers to his former association with the Zealot Party. The Zealot Party was a group who hated foreign rulers. They hated Rome. And they were, they were one of the few groups that was not afraid to do things to rebel against the Roman authorities. And so um, it's interesting. You get Matthew, who we know is a tax collector. He's a direct employee of Rome. He's extracting money for his people on behalf of Rome. Then you get Simon, this guy who is basically a terrorist to Rome. And there would have been a lot of natural tension and a lot of uh, probably natural hatred between these guys, but it's never mentioned, um, which I find encouraging that God can pull us from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of personalities. And through the bond of Christ, we can live in peace with each other and encourage each other. Um, and then we get to Judas, who's the son of James. He's also called Thaddeus in Mark and Matthew's gospel. Uh, and he's likely the one in John 14 that wanted Jesus to reveal himself to the whole world. So they're starting to get who Jesus is. They're starting to understand how powerful he is, that he's the Messiah. And he's saying, hey, God, Jesus, just make it clear to everybody and they'll understand and we'll have a big wide party. It'll be awesome. And, and, but what he's not getting at that point is that Jesus has, has to go be a perfect sacrifice for us. And so um, Jesus explains that, you know, that's not the way that things are going to go down, that that's not how his kingdom's going to work, that he's going to be um, sacrificed for their sins so that we can have access to the Father. And then finally, we get to Judas Iscariot. Uh, and we know a lot about him. He's mentioned a lot in the Gospels. And he was the one who turned his back on Jesus and literally sold, sold Jesus sold Jesus' life for money. Um, now, Jesus handpicks him here, and Judas is in this crowd of people that are following Jesus, and he had to be in it for a while to be picked to be one of the disciples. So initially, there was some fascination with Jesus, some genuine interest in what Jesus was doing, what he was saying, who he was. Um, but we see uh, that at some point, Judas stops agreeing with Jesus's message and he stops kind of uh, going you know he stops he, he can't see what Jesus is really wanting to do with this kingdom um, we don't know exactly why or exactly how but at some point there becomes a chasm between his heart and what he thinks is right and what Jesus is proclaiming and we don't know why he didn't leave I mean John 6 records a time where Jesus says some pretty hard things about what the kingdom of God is like and some pretty hard things about what it means to be a disciple. And a bunch of people say, I'm out. This is not what, you know, I thought it was, I thought this was going to be a cool time, but this, this stinks, I'm out of here. Judas could have done that. He didn't do it. And not only did he not do it, but he kept up the guise of being devoted and being a devoted disciple all the way until the end where he goes to the authorities and literally says, if you give me money, I will hand Jesus over to you to be killed. And so um, there's a warning for us there because Judas is with Jesus. He's seeing the divine God face to face and he is still missing the truth of God's kingdom. 
Um, so God is, is faithful. If we call out to him, he'll open our eyes and he'll help us to see. Um, but unfortunately, that didn't happen for Judas. And one other point I want to make is Jesus did pick Judas. Judas did turn him over to be killed. But we need to understand that this was not a mistake on Jesus' behalf. Um, he was perfect while he was here. The Bible makes that clear. Uh, he did not make any mistakes. And he just prayed all night to God. So, um, you know, this is part of God's sovereign plan. It's not that he didn't spend enough time praying. It's not that he didn't pray the right acronym of his prayer or that he didn't have his knees at the right angle when he was praying. This is part of God's sovereign plan to bring about salvation for the world. Um, and so Jesus didn't make any mistakes. And I was thinking about that in our lives. We have to make a lot of decisions. And uh, some of those are going to be big decisions. Unlike Jesus, we are going to make some mistakes in some of the decisions we make. But I think we've got to be cautious in judging the outcome of a decision um, as a success or a failure because, you know, it may be part of, of a plan that God is working to bring about, um, you know, his glory or change in your heart or change in somebody else's life. So uh, unfortunately, a lot of the really valuable lessons that I feel like the Spirit of God has taught me has, has been through sometimes mistakes that I've made and, and having to learn um, from the, the natural consequences that flow from those mistakes. All right, so that's kind of who the disciples are in a, in a nutshell. Again, these guys were really important. Um, you know, we don't know exactly how old they are. When we get to see them, a lot happened in their life up to that point, and we don't have everything recorded about them after Jesus dies. So we get a small window into their lives. But there are um, three lessons that I think that we can glean from Jesus choosing the 12 disciples. So um, first of all is that Jesus has a sense of humor. And we'll see this a little more in Luke. Um, the next three weeks we're going to be studying Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through the end of the chapter, verse 49. Uh, and in there there's a story where Jesus says, don't try to take a speck out of somebody else's eye, meaning like an eyelash, when you have a log, or think of like a long broomstick sticking out of your eye. And he also tells the story about two blind men can't lead each other, or they'll fall into a pit. So Jesus is using these kind of real life, you know, funny slash ridiculous examples to, to communicate, you know, truths about his kingdom. But he also gives nicknames, which I think is pretty cool. So he's kind of like the guy on your football team that hands out nicknames to everybody. So we don't know if everybody had a nickname, but we know some of the disciples did have a nickname. And so we shouldn't picture Jesus in kind of serious, stoic mode all the time. He, there were a lot of aspects of, to his personality, and people were really drawn to him. And, you know, in general, the most serious, stoic people don't have the biggest crowds of people around them. So, you know, it's important for us to kind of expand our thinking about what Jesus would have been like. So, I mean, you can think about what nickname he would have given you. I don't know. He probably would have given me one like Lumberjack or Brawny or some spiritual nickname like that. Um, so, but Jesus does have a sense of humor. Uh, and he's very intentional in who he's going to spend his life with. So God has infinite uh, abilities, infinite resources. Jesus, while he was here on earth, is, is divinely God, but he's also fully human. Um, so he had to do things like eat. He had to do things like sleep and rest. So he intentionally says, I'm going to section off these 12 guys and I'm going to spend uh, more time with them and I'm going to do things with them that I'm not going to do with other people because he's got a bunch of people around him uh, at this point. And so I think it's important for us in our lives 
There are only going to be so many people who really know us and who we can really share ourselves with on a deep, intimate level. And 12 is maybe even on the high side. 6 to 12 is probably what most of us can handle with people that truly know us, that we don't have to worry about, you know, fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, um, that, that they're going to love us despite all of our nastiness. And um, so it's okay for us to have some boundaries, to have some limitations in our lives. Uh, we don't have to be everyone's savior. Um, and Jesus has all these people with him, but he really spends time with these 12 guys uniquely. And they're going to be the 12 that are going to be the cornerstones of the church once he's gone. They're going to be the ones that are going to go be evangelists, that are going to teach the church, that are going to provide training to believers. And so I'm not saying that um, it's okay to have, you know, cliques or be exclusive or anything like that. We should never feel like as believers there's an in crowd and an out crowd. Uh, and there'll be times that we need to be willing to flex on our boundaries or our limitations and that we need to be open to what the Spirit is leading. But at the same time, um, it's okay to be intentional in your relationships and in your friendships. Um, the last thing I want to mention is Jesus is giving us a glimpse into kind of the, the eternal new coming kingdom. So when God originally established Israel, he had 12 tribes, and now he's picking, Jesus is picking 12 disciples um, for his new coming kingdom. So Jesus' plan from the beginning, from the time he got here, was the mission of the cross, and to open salvation to all of humanity. And he's giving us a glimpse in here by, by choosing the number 12 and how he picks them. Um, so I want to close with some thoughts on why people were drawn to Jesus uh, and why people still come to God and, and what he's offering. Um, so in verses 17, 18, and 19, we see there's this huge crowd of people, right? And some of those are his, his followers. Some of those are the disciples who've left their professions. But a lot of people, um, unless you just have ancient Mideast Mid geography memorized, okay, in which case maybe you need some more friends, you probably don't know what Judea, Jerusalem, Tyre, and Sidon all mean. That Judea and Jerusalem are, are the south, and then these other two places are the north and the coastlands. So what this is meant to, what you're meant to see here is people are coming from all over to see Jesus. This is not one town or one region. Basically, his, frame, his fame has spread, and this is like a Taylor Swift concert. Like, everybody wants to come and see what is happening, right? And so you have his followers, but then you have these great multitudes beyond his followers. Um, and so people come to God for a lot of reasons, and a lot of times the reason people come to God is not God himself. And if you come to God for any reason other than God himself, then you're not really seeking God. You're seeking something else and you just view God as the avenue to get there. So if you are really seeking riches and you think following God will make you rich, you're not really valuing God that much. You're valuing that he can get you to what you really want. Or a lot of times you see this with sickness, People will not have much regard for God and they'll find out that they, that they have a really serious illness and they'll, they'll turn to God and pray for him all the time for healing. Um, and then if they, if they are healed, a lot of times they go back to having no regard for God. This, there, there's no value for God there. There's value for health and, or fear of not wanting 
uh, uh, to die. And so you view God as the way to get there. And, and that's more of a, um, that's not viewing God for who he is, which is the, the Lord over all of the universe that we were created um, to praise and give him glory. And that's the only way we can find satisfaction in him. So you have these great multitudes of people and it says a lot of them are just pressing in on him. Um, they just want to get healing. And again, in the Bible, you find a lot of people that Jesus heals. There are a lot of these stories, but there are a few of those stories that end with, and the people who got healed turned and followed Jesus. So Jesus is, is kind in that he makes himself available and open to all um, for healing and salvation. But a lot of people are not interested in that. They're interested in, in getting what they can get from him and moving on. And so if you haven't ever called out to God just for who he is, Jesus is still, he's, he's still, he's not here in the literal sense or us as Christians are not here in the literal sense that we can walk around and you can touch us and be healed. But he is still open to anyone who calls out to him. The Bible says, um, if you seek him, that he will be faithful to answer and that he will wash away your sin and give you salvation and give you eternity with his father. Um, so there were a lot of people that came to Jesus, but not a lot of people came to Jesus for who he is. But I did want to uh, also highlight that Jesus dealt with people in their individual situation. He treated them as humans. He did not treat them as a, a, a class of people or a case to be dealt with. We see him often putting his hands on people that no one else would touch. We see him asking questions about people's lives before he heals them. We see him going to Martha and Mary when Lazarus has died and weeping with them in their grief over Lazarus before he raises them from the dead. And so I was encouraged as I was thinking through that, um, God does call us to share the message of his truth with people and to share the gospel and in, in, in many situations calls us to provide um, physical relief as well, but we need to we need to view them as as they are as as um, creation of God as people who have value, and that's how treated people treated Jesus treated people. He treated them with, as individuals and with dignity. And so I was encouraged as we think about that um, that we want to be burdened to help people, but we want to be burdened to help them as people and not as um, you know trying to build a success of TCC or prove anything to ourselves. So um, I want to close with that. And if you haven't ever called out to God, the message is still clear. These people were here because they wanted to see what Jesus was about. He's going to go on in the next section and he's going to tell them what he's about. He's going to tell them what the kingdom of God is like um, and, and how to, to come to him. So if you haven't called out to God, Call out, he is faithful. He will answer your prayer. He will wash away your sins. He will give you salvation. Um, if you are a believer, be encouraged. God has a plan for you to use you in his kingdom to bring himself the most glory. And he has power to change your hearts, to change our hearts. Uh, we've been praying, as, as Byron shared with the um, 60 days of reading the Bible, this is not a legalistic exercise to show that you can do it and, and to prove that you're better than somebody else. But we pray that as communing with God, as Jesus often did, seeking out God in prayer and seeking to commune with him, that it will, it will increase your love and affection for him. So we're going to do the Lord's Supper. Um, and as we move to that time, um, it's a time to remember the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus did pay, that he offered his life to give us salvation. 
Um, it's a good time to confess sin, to repent, and just to, to bless him for his goodness. So if you're a believer, we have two tables in the back, one in the, or two in the front, one in the back. If you're not a believer, use this time to call out to him. He'll answer. So let's close in prayer. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you do use sinners like us. I thank you, Father, that we can trust that you care about us, that you love us, that you know what's best for us and that you offer that to us. I thank you for your word. I thank you for encouraging us, Lord, that you have always cared for your people, taken care of your people. And I thank you, Lord, that we can trust going forward that you'll continue to do that. I thank you that you've promised us to be adopted into your family. We don't deserve it, Lord, but we're grateful for it. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to desire you, to desire to seek you. And I pray that our hearts, Lord, will soar with joy. We just thank you for this time. Thank you to be able to gather together, to worship together. We thank you for that freedom. And I pray, Jesus, that you will give us just um, give us the desire to always gather and seek you and proclaim your name regardless of the circumstances around us. In your name, Jesus, amen.